This week on the Saber.com podcast. College football season is off and running, and for the Who's, that meant a win. So, a look back at the shutout against William & Mary, and look ahead to the game with Illinois, plus a basketball segment, and a Charlie Watts tribute. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, the Saber.com. Time once again for the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host. We discuss all things Who's sports every week here on the program, joined by Editor Chris Wright, Associate Editor Chris Horn, and gentlemen, lots to discuss. Big win for the Who's as they kick off the football season against William and Mary and pitch a shutout. So lots of good, and it might have been a little bit of a slow start for the offense, but uh, let's get your guys' general impressions, and then we'll dive in uh, for the deep analysis here. Chris Wright, uh, you want to go first? I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is largest margin of victory in the Bronco Mendenhall era. So that takes a combination of things to happen. You know, they had, they had a couple that are close. I think 42 to 13 once over Richmond, the Abilene Christian game last year with that crazy backdoor cover on the last play of the game, I think was a 40, 40 point margin of victory. So this was 43 and the first shutout since the belt bowl first shutout in the opener in a long time. So yeah, to, for me, that's the biggest thing. That means the offense played pretty well. Shaky start, obviously, but played pretty well. Defense played really well to get a shutout, which is just really hard, really hard to do. Frankly, it doesn't take much in modern offenses to get yourself into field goal range or something like that. And then, you know, special teams played fairly well in terms of flipping the field when when relevant. Uh, Billy Kemp obviously got things started with a with that big return. You got a one called back for Mike Collins on the kickoff return, but those worried about speed on kickoff return got a glimpse that Hollins has another gear (laughs) with that. So I thought that was a good sign. And then they blocked a field goal too. So in general, all three phases playing really well. If you want to throw in the fourth side, the student section was jumping. Yeah. Overall, a very good start. Lots of things to improve on, not super perfect or anything like that, but it was fairly clean in terms of penalties and all those sort of things. Tackling was fairly clean. There, There are things to clean up, but in general, a very good start. And it gets harder the rest of the way, right? So there are no more lower level teams left on the schedule. Everybody else is power five or independent uh, with BYU and Notre Dame. So we'll see uh, where things go from here. Yeah, I mean, starting with the, the fourth side, man, the student section, I'm not sure if I've seen, seen it that packed in a, in a long time. I mean, that was just, I think, what the university has done as far as uh, – you know, when the, the first years, I believe, came in and they took them to Scott Stadium and really making an emphasis on them being the fourth side seems to have made an impact. Now, that's going to be tested big time this weekend, <laughs> the 11 a.m. start on Saturday. But still, no, I think that's a very encouraging sign. And I think the players really responded well to that. Kind of going in reverse order from Chris, I think, yeah, special teams came in with definitely some questions. I mean, Brian Delaney moving on. How is Justin Dunkel going to look? How is he going to look in his first start? I thought both of his field goals were, you know, no question, good leg, good strength, uh, and good accuracy on, on both of those field goals. So definitely a thumbs up for him as far as his first performance. I know he kicked a kickoff out of bounds, I believe, late in the game. But I think, uh, you know, he's he was generally, generally pretty good in that area last year. But then, uh, yeah, Jacob Finn had the – uh, really, uh, really good punt to pin, pin William & Mary back. So that, that was a plus for him. And then, yeah, as Chris mentioned, the special teams, uh, the, the big plays, you know, the Mike Hollins kick return. Unfortunately, that was called back, but, uh, you know, great, you know, 100-yard kick, uh, kickoff return. Billy Kemp's punt return, you know, we've seen him be solid as a punt returner, but never 
not necessarily somebody that I thought of as like, hey, he's gonna he can he, he's gonna uh, break a big one at any time. But uh, to see him do, be able to do something like that is is pretty encouraging. And then the block punt and either, or block excuse me block field goal and even on the first field goal try by William and Mary, uh, they they seem to get some pretty good pressure on that one as well. So I thought the special teams looked really good. Yeah, the defense. I thought. I mean, obviously, shutout uh, speaks for itself anytime. But I think the uh, the Virginia defensive line looked pretty good. But uh, you know, again, you're going against the uh, you know kind of a true freshman quarterback, so not a whole lot you can gain from that. His, you know, his passing wasn't that great, but it still, Virginia was able to to come away with uh, the shutout, which was pretty uh, pretty big. And we saw some guys you know step up uh, certainly. Who you know, Hunter Stewart uh, comes to mind at linebacker, really played well in his time out there. So that was encouraging to see Fentrell Cypress the second as cornerback. Um, and then on offense, you know, the Virginia offensive line kind of concerned me in the first half a little bit. I thought the William and Mary defensive line kind of came to play and, and really punched them in the mouth. And, and uh, for a while there, it didn't look like they were playing uh, very well, in my opinion. You know, as the game went on, Virginia's offensive line played better, but you know, I think we're at the point where we need one. Uh, I'd like to see them be like a more dominant group, especially against a, a team like William & Mary. But yeah, Brennan Armstrong, I thought, played very well. Uh, Dontavian Wicks, once he got settled in, played very well. So yeah, all across the board, a lot, a lot of positives. As Chris mentioned, some things to still work on moving forward. But uh, yeah, I mean, really, really good solid first game. And we'll find out more this coming week. A couple of uh, fourth down stops, I think, is maybe what you're referring to there, Chris Horn. Uh, EVA going forward on fourth down, didn't make it a couple times early. Armstrong, we talked about this last year on the podcast. It's been a bit of a bugaboo for him, these slow starts. So what was it, three points at half, uh, at the three points after one quarter, and then kind of a late first half touchdown to make it a 17-0 game. And then you kind of felt, I think if it had been 10-0 at half, UVA fans might not have been feeling so good. But that it was good to get that uh, that second touchdown before halftime but you know overall over 500 yards once again for the who's offense eight different players running the ball what did you guys make of the multi-quarterback ensemble and the way it was kind of uh unleashed throughout the game that's going to give illinois and future opponents all kinds of uh preparation to do right that's interesting it kind of depends on if you're considering them quarterbacks or not uh, a lot of the ways they were used were basically used as a wide receiver or an h-back or whatever I mean, FBP, FBP, right? <laughs> Alameda Zacchaeus used to do that early in this staff's tenure as well, where he would take a few handoffs here and there. there. There's one particular play where somebody will motion into the backfield and then reverse and come back and get a handoff. That's been here for, for the entire time the staff has been here. So you can call them whatever you want to. These are basically running back plays. So until they do something else out of it, um, I think you just, if you're an opponent, you just go, hey, this is, this is what we see from other teams as well. Just because that person has quarterback beside their name doesn't change your keys. But I also think that's what Virginia is hoping. You know what I mean? I, I think they're probably hoping that. And based on kind of what Coach Mendenhall said, he said a lot of these kind of concepts right now for the offense are based upon being hard to guard as a defense. So if you're showing them this and you're giving them certain keys, because defenders are all based on keys, pre-snap and post-snap, if you're showing them this and they're treating this guy like a running back and then he stops and throws it, that's ultimately what we need to see if it can build toward. And if it does, can those guys, whatever their football player role or quarterback role or H-back role or whatever they're playing, can they actually be accurate those few times they do throw? Otherwise, it becomes just a, a running play, right, if they're never a threat to accurately throw. So 
that's a remain to be seen thing. You know, Brennan, I wrote about in the preseason and that's to me, one of the biggest areas that he, that he needs to gain on is consistency. Can he be good pretty much all the way through a game? And we've seen plenty of games where he's red hot, <laughs> eight of nine for 90 yards and a touchdown. And he's cold one of four, one of six or something like that, a three and out and a five and out or something like that. You know what I mean? So there seem to be a lot of hot and cold. Can he get those two closer to together? And ideally, I guess, closer together on the high end, the more eight of nine uh, consistency, the better, right? But um, if you can get more to the middle, that would be good. Well, and uh, philosophically, um, the use of the the FVP in, in the lineup, I mean, Thompson, <laughs> he was doing everything. He was everywhere and uh, ran off a nice, you know, yards after catch uh, run at one point. So he looks like he could be that X factor, you know, that we've we've talked about in, in terms of, is he going to throw it? Is he going to run it? Is he going to be a blocking tight end, a pass catching tight end, wide receiver? I mean, he can, he can really do it all. It's fun to watch. Yeah, uh, no, he's, yeah, he was uh, a, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of fun to watch. I think now from a throwing aspect, I don't think he's that, I don't think maybe I, I may be wrong on this, but uh, maybe Chris can correct me, but I, I don't think he's completed a pass yet. So that remains to be seen, but certainly his potential as a runner and as a receiver, I think what I, what I took away from him, it looked like he is much improved as a, much more comfortable as a receiver in that first game. And I think uh, that's going to be helpful. He had the, you know, touchdown drop, which I'm sure he was kicking himself over that. And that's another thing, uh, you know, kind of going off a little bit like last year with, with Armstrong, you know, he, he was the victim of, you know, a lot of dropped passes as well. And we saw that creep in again against William and Mary. So hopefully him and the receiving core can get on the same page. I think in the first half you saw, you know, Dontavian Wicks drop an easy pass, but then you saw Brennan Armstrong uh, miss Dontavian when he was wide open for a, what would have been a touchdown behind the defense. So if they can get on the same page to, to Chris's point and just be consistent and, and, and not have, you know, the drops or the, the, the misfires and things like that, that's what, what the goal is. But again, I thought, you know, especially as the game went on, they played, they played uh, very well, but yeah, Keaton. Uh, so his, and I think we had talked about last week, how, um, is there, you know, Virginia needs kind of another receiver, that uh, that other receiver to kind of step forward. Now, if Keaton Thompson can step up and be, be a more consistent receiver, that kind of helps fill that void in my mind. So that was really encouraging to me to see him see him like that. And I think you're still going to see him, you know, get the ball with some carries and things like that. But, yes, very, very fun to watch. And now his backup F uh, football player, <laughs> uh, Jacob Rodriguez, yeah, I thought he looked pretty good as a run. I mean, uh, yeah, as Chris mentioned, it's basically kind of a running play, so like a running back. But uh, yeah, I was encouraged by his his ability to carry the football as well. So they appear to have a lot of guys capable of carrying the football and making plays in the run game. I think the trick is not getting too cute and then find you know kind of maybe settling on something that you can certainly rely on that's going to be there game in game out. Just a couple of stats things to add there. It was four drops per. Pro football focus grades, four in one game is a lot. Keaton Thompson, seven catches all of last year, five catches in this game. And, and just watching from field level, his, his routes seem better. They seem more varied. Uh, he was in more spots on the field. It just felt like it, or at least he was targeted in more spots on the field, even if he was running those routes last year. So, yeah, like very good sign that he can be a, a different level receiver in addition to the threat he brings to the table running the football. Well, I did um... – want to make mention too there, there was a time or two where Armstrong ran the ball late in the game maybe not 
super late, but it was the game was well in hand and and he took off running. That may have been that second touchdown he got, but it, it made me a little nervous. Like, come on now, we got plenty of other guys to, to run the ball at this point. Let's not get him hurt in the first game. But uh, 11 different uh, who's catching passes. So we had eight different uh, players running the ball, 11 different who's catching passes. And, you know, that's even more than I think we talked about in the, uh, the pregame, guys. Chris Horn, what was your takeaway from the the receiving core first of all going back to your your, your point about armstrong yeah he, he he ran less but it certainly seems like the virginia staff isn't su- super worried about keeping quarterbacks healthy necessarily i mean <laughs> you have the you know brennan didn't run as much so that's good but you know obviously as as the that's a that is you know i expect him to run more a little bit more anyway as the season goes on but then your ira armstead played a little bit more as far as running the ball, I was kind of surprised to see him in early yeah. running the ball and things like that. Jacob Rodriguez, another quarterback. So they're putting their quarterbacks out there to play. Obviously you just hope nobody gets, nobody gets injured, but, uh, but yeah, as far as the receivers, I mean, the spotlight was on, in addition to Keaton was on uh, Dontavian Wicks coming in a shaky start, but you got to like how he rebounded from that start and really uh, ended up with a, a really good game. I think what four catches or so for, uh, 90 something yards and in the second half making a very difficult catch on a not perfectly thrown ball uh, for a key first down so that was nice uh, nice to see um, and kind of hopefully an indication of what he can do moving forward so really good I think confidence boosting game for him heading into uh, again a much uh, higher level of competition or a higher level of competition this this week Billy Kemp, you know, still uh, doing Billy Kemp things. Uh, was good to see Demick Starling. You know, I think you saw his speed and what he can do, um, and he's. I think he is going to be a real uh, deep ball threat. Maybe he's another guy that you know, he didn't get a whole lot of targets. You know, I think uh, Pro Football Focus had him at he was only in for like nine plays or so. Uh, so is, is he only going to be a guy who comes in occasionally for like a deep ball attempt, or is he going to be maybe a guy that can develop into? a consistent receiver that they can rely on and in and, and many different different facets. That kind of remains to be seen, but I think you can see his playmaking ability and that when he's out there, that defenses are going to take uh, notice of him. Didn't see a whole lot of Artie Henry, but I expect that to kind of change. But again, I think I was encouraged by, you know, Wicks, Thompson, uh, again, Kemp, I think had a drop, but, you know, still I think he's going to be consistent, have another good season this year. At tight end, uh, you know, Johnny Woods, we didn't get to see a whole lot because of, uh, you know, whatever injury he was dealing with. Sounds like he's going to be okay. But, you know, I'm not sure. I think last year you saw Tony Poljan seem to be a much more polished receiver, and Woods is going to be kind of maybe a work in progress, at least from the very few snaps we saw in the first first game for for UVA. So we'll see about that tight end position as far as uh, receiving threat from there. 99% sure that was just crap's. You know, I, I was on the sideline taking pictures and the way they were treating that initially before they took him into the tent. That, if that was anything other than cramps, I'll be surprised. Well, uh, Rashawn Henry and uh, Starling, yeah. like you said, Chris Horn, those were the two that caught the touchdown passes, uh, the receiving passes. And Ronnie Walker Jr. got in the end zone for his uh, one carry was a touchdown. Rushing wise, he caught a pass too. So I saw some encouraging things from from him as well. What do you think uh, down there field level, Chris, right? Yeah, a, a running back screen. I know some fans have begged mightily for more traditional screens. So you got a couple of those in this game, I thought. The Rashawn Henry catch was really, really good. That touchdown catch was exceptional. Armstrong yes. put it pretty much in a perfect spot. 
Yep. You know, I don't love those fade routes, those 50-50 balls, jump balls, whatever. I don't love them, but that one was perfectly executed. Yep. And he went up and high pointed it and brought it down. And he, he made that look really good. And Armstrong really took care of his part of that. And Rayshon did say that one of his strengths, he thinks, is going up and attacking the ball. He has enough vertical and the ability ability to go up and attack the ball to make that one of his strengths as a receiver. So um, he showed it on that play. Demix Darling. He and Ira are given a little uh, infusion of speed to the offense. You know, I, I don't think of Virginia as a particularly speedy offense overall, but those two, yeah, they, they have a little burst. Uh, and I thought that was pretty obvious during the game. So that's an element that was a little bit concerning, right? With Lavelle Davis Jr.'s timetable unknown currently. Was there anyone that could take the lid off the defense? Well, Demick Starling can, um, at least for this week. Yeah, he, he was... Once he caught it, there it wasn't even close. He ran away. So um, that, that will be an important potential element of the offense. If he's a threat on some of those throws, and that's something that I think Brennan does pretty well that Virginia hasn't capitalized on overly consistently is throw the deep ball versus Bryce Perkins. I think he has a little better touch than Bryce Perkins on the deep passes. Yeah, I mean, that's an element that Demick Starling specifically can bring to the table. Yeah, and as I mentioned, yeah, Wicks had one uh, available to him in the first half where Brennan just barely overshot him, but that that was another. So, <laughs> so I think Wicks Wicks has shown that uh, a little bit as well. But yeah, I can't believe I left off Rayshon Henry. I mean, uh, Coach Mendenhall mentioned that he was, which is interesting. He comes in as a grad transfer, and you know, this offseason, he's maybe the one of the most improved players on the team. And uh, uh, yeah, that route that he ran um, for for the touchdown was beautiful how he was able to run the route, kind of stay balanced, and then separate from the receiver and then make the catch. Uh, that was – that, that whole play was extremely impressive for me. So, yeah, he uh, he definitely – you know, he, he received a lot of accolades from his team uh, teammates uh, for his offseason performance. And I thought we saw glimpses of that. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, he, he could be in for a big season. I like I liked his comments a lot uh, when, he, when he spoke to the media that, you know, he's not – afraid it doesn't appear as though he's afraid of the competition i think he's uh so he he could be uh definitely one to watch this year if you haven't looked on the site there's a photo gallery there that has the rayshon henry catch in it and you can see really him both hands around the football but the reason i was laughing is that the dontavian wicks overthrow brennan said after the game that he had underthrown it and practiced several times and so he was like i'm gonna get this one out there and then <laughs> overshot it so that just made me laugh because I, I remembered him saying that after the game I almost feel like sometimes on those plays, the guy's so wide open that the the quarterback almost is just has to be like, think for a second, like, wait, I got to hit this guy. And then just there's something <laughs> that happens between the brain and the arm that like <laughs> the connection just doesn't get made. But whereas if, you know, he had been blanket coverage, probably would have been right in there, you know, right in the basket. So that would be nice to see again this Saturday versus uh, an Illinois team that scared me a little bit because they won at Nebraska, even though Nebraska is definitely not the Nebraska of old. That was the uh, the week zero, I guess people are calling it, since there were only a handful of teams that played. But as for their uh, return home, they were upset 37-30 to 30 by UTSA. I believe that's University of Texas San Antonio. Chris, you're familiar with that uh, part of the world, being a Spurs fan. Uh, <laughs> so... That, I think, bodes well for uh, for UVA, but they're a Big Ten, you know, Power Five opponent. Uh, we'll see. It looks like a lot of uh, that kind of traditional Big Ten style of, you know, I think Penn State and Wisconsin was scoreless at halftime, and those are supposedly two of the top 20 teams in the country. So 
maybe not as offensive minded as uh, other conferences around, except for Ohio State, of course. But what do you guys make of the Illini coming in? What do the Who's need to do to uh, kind of keep it rolling here? Yeah, the 11 a.m. start will be interesting to see how the players. Re- it feels like every game uh, has been like 7, 7 p.m. or later yeah. <laughs> the past several years. So I think that could possibly be an adjustment, although I think Coach Mendenhall will have those guys ready. So I think, again, I think that, yeah, they'll they'll be ready. Illinois, you know, I think the, early in the season, you know, can be kind of difficult to predict some of these games. I mean, Illinois, as you mentioned, uh, beat Nebraska, which, yeah, they're not the Nebraska of old, but they're, you know, they're how – you know, how bad are they really? I mean, they're not, uh, I don't think they're necessarily title contenders, but they've, uh, you know, they still a decent win uh, for uh, Brett Bielema in his opening um, game as Illinois head coach. So you have an experienced head coach. Obviously he was head coach at Wisconsin and Arkansas. So he's, he's used to, big time football and things like that and getting his teams ready. Illinois has, I believe, I believe I read it correctly, 21 super seniors. So UVA has got what, eight or nine, uh, so they have a lot of, uh, you know, experienced kind of older guys uh, who have played a lot of football. They have some playmakers, I think, on offense that we've seen. They have a couple good, you know, good running backs. They have, uh, uh, you know, a guy, uh, uh, Epstein, I believe, is not a speed burner, but a, a pretty solid looking running back. Then they have some more speedier guys and then they have some receivers who can who can do some things. Isaiah Williams, I believe, had uh, 100 yards receiving this past week. So they have enough weapons, certainly, to challenge Virginia. And if Virginia doesn't come out and if they're not sharp, then, uh, then you know, they could find themselves in a kind of a crazy game, uh, kind of back and forth game potentially. But defensively, I think Virginia – or that I don't think, I don't think Illinois is where, uh, at least from what I've seen, uh, where they need to be to stop Virginia. I think once Virginia – can get going kind of similar to like they did against William and Mary that they can be pretty tough to stop, especially once Armstrong gets going and, and this Illinois defense has surrendered some big plays uh, to Nebraska, as well as to obviously uh, Texas San Antonio uh, this past week. And they've had some miscommunication type stuff. So I think, you know, for an Illinois program kind of starting off on under under new staff, I think, again, they have some players who could, who could worry Virginia, but if Virginia comes out focused and, and uh, and and plays consistent football, they should, I think, should be able to get a, a double digit win. But uh, but you never know. Again, maturity, and you know, I'm sure they're going to be Illinois is going to be looking to uh, to rebound from that that lo- bad loss this past weekend. Watching some of the Nebraska game, lots and lots and lots of stretch runs. The old Al Grow linemen are moving. There's moving landmarks for what you're supposed to block. The running back's kind of moving along, and it's just going to choose one. It's not a designated hole. He just chooses the hole. Those are tricky to guard. A lot of 12 personnel, meaning big boys. So like extra tight end blocking, you know, sometimes a bigger back, that sort of thing. They've got a speedy receiver. If you get caught overdoing it, they can hit the speedy receiver behind you. So that can be tricky. And the NC State game last year is the first thing that jumped to mind for me. Game two had looked pretty good against Duke. Against the run, they'd been okay. They had some pass breakdowns against Duke, but – Pretty good against the run in game one. And then in game two, the stretch runs gave them all kinds of trouble against NC State, who also was running similar big personnel. So to me, that's a little bit of a red flag. I don't think Illinois is as good as NC State. So that that's a key part there, too. I think this Virginia team is potentially better than last year's Virginia team in week two, uh, particularly with the offseason, off-season buildup and strength program. And uh, Coach Mendenhall was really erring on the side of caution during preseason buildup last year. And I think he even said he aired too far. So maybe they just weren't ready for it. But I did ask him specifically, 
in the weekly press conference. Hey, listen, on that Nebraska tape, it looks a lot like the stretch runs that NC State beat you with. Here's what he had to say. Certainly hopeful that it's improved. The run game, there is there are some similarities. Um, and with bigger personnel, um, you know, two tight ends and, and an extra tight end. So, um, yeah, it doesn't take much for a ball to decrease or to, um, to have success. Um, it has been an emphasis and a target for us, so um, hopefully we've improved. Right. So, I mean, he, he's hoping they're improved, but I think all of us need to see it on the, on the field against those big runs, big stretch runs, big experienced offensive line. How does the defense deal with it as you take a step up from an FCS team to a, to a Big Ten team? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, to your point, Craig, I think, you know, Virginia has reason to feel good about its linebackers and defensive line. But I think one, on on some of those runs, I think it's important for the defensive backs, especially obviously when you're going five defensive backs to come up and and be, uh, be really solid against the run and solid tackling. And I thought last year, uh, for me, Nick Grant and Devontae Cross, as far as the tackling perspective, were not where they needed to be. So in this past week, from a tackling perspective per Pro Football Focus, both Grant and Cross graded under 50 uh, in that tackling arena. So that that's going to challenge them. So they're going to have to be very solid, fill the right gaps, and and make sure tackles, or else it could it could be something that gives them a, you know gives uh, the UVA defense some some issues throughout the game. And as I mentioned, if if it turns into a crazy kind of back and forth game, you know that could be something to watch as well. But you know, so I think this week Nick Grant. Devontae Cross or guys I'm going to be looking at to see if they can really step forward and have big games in against the run and in the uh, tackling aspect. Joy, Joy Blunt missed the NC State game last year. Ah. So glaring thing there too. I'd like to remember that he's really good at, at dissecting things and at plugging holes and tackling. He had a couple against William and Mary that he just came right into a gap wrapped up, took the guy down. So that, that's a key one there too. They didn't have him last year for this type of team. If they have him this week, which, you know, he looked fine uh, through the William and Mary game. Yeah. Should, should be a big, a big part of answering this question. What do you guys make of the terminology from the press conference this week with Bronco? So Nick Grant started at corner uh, against William and Mary. He's listed as safety. Now cross started at strong safety. Now he's the nickel blunt has moved from free to strong safety Anthony Johnson, who came over from Louisville, good choice on his part, by the way, uh, after the, game, <laughs> the, the egg that Louisville laid their first game. But uh, so he's listed as boundary corner in place of uh, Bratton. Bratton switched to field corner behind Cypress. So what do you make of all of these kind of nomenclature uh, <laughs> things? Chris Horn, does it mean much to you? It's a positionless defensive backfield. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, why even bother? Just put, just put CFB behind uh, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, well, that's, yeah. I mean, I mean, you see cross cross has played all over the place. I think Grant's had that. He's, he's played safety and cornerback throughout his career. I would say Anthony Johnson probably falls into that same category. Maybe, Maybe more of a cornerback, but he, uh, you know, he certainly has that kind of physical makeup that uh, those other guys have. And, you know, obviously Joey Blunt's a safety, but, you know, I mean, they've versatility, I think, has been a, a trademark of the Virginia defense under Coach Mendenhall. Uh, you know, so I think it's not a surprise to, to see. I think this is something we've seen kind of before uh, many times. And, um, you yeah, know, so it's not, no, I'm, I'm not taking a whole lot from it. I do think, again, going back to Fentrell Cypress, I think he is kind of that true corner, brings the speed. So I think it's good to have a guy like that, and I'm anxious to see how he's going to do throughout the season, assuming he can stay healthy because that's been an issue for him. Uh, with that speed, maybe he can be a 
lockdown type cornerback type guy that they've been missing the past uh, past season and a half. But yeah, as far as those other guys, I think they've they've done that kind of uh, you know uh, versatility, playing multiple position type things, uh, you know, being used in different arenas for for quite a while. Chris Wright, anything to add on the? Uh... <laughs> We've talked about this in past episodes, just the different names of positions and whatnot, but placement on the field, does that really matter too much? I mean, these guys are moving around a lot. The communication is the key part, right? Yeah. If you're going to move guys around a lot, you better be communicating. Um, that That's for sure. Like no, no recipe for disaster worse than players assuming what they see is what everyone sees and then do the wrong thing. So communication, a big one, you know, Ahmad and I had a little exchange on Ahmad Hawkins and I had a little exchange on the message board about boundary field corner, like doesn't matter. Field side has a lot more of the route tree to cover, more space, so you can do different and all of the routes. Boundary corner has less routes, but when you take that into the team scheme, and this is something Ahmad pointed out, AFL finals defensive MVP, so listen to him, not me, that team scheme-wise, you can help the field corner more. You can roll coverages that way. You can play combo coverages. You can do zones. You can do this. The boundary corner who's guarding less pass routes is doing it more one-on-one more often, right? So there are nuances here, and it's really all about defensive philosophy and schemes. In Virginia's case, they're trying to leave that boundary guy one-on-one, force you to kind of take your eyes over here to to the field side where things seem open, and they've got blitzes and pressures coming and the rolling coverage. They're trying to fool you, right, to get you to throw into that. If that works well, then that can create havoc. Havoc equals, you know, sacks, tackles for loss, pass deflections, interceptions, things like that. And that's what Virginia is ultimately trying to do. So the others are more hybrid positions that the X and the N nickelback X linebacker in, in the, in the sub packages are more about just being a hybrid player, I think, but yes, it matters who's where and how they tie together and how they communicate. Well, I had a slip of the tongue earlier and said uh, CFP uh, instead of uh, FBP. I meant to say a football player, <laughs> but I've got college football playoff on the mind because I got to thinking about it, guys. After that performance, Clemson, it was a close game, but not really as close as the score indicated. Georgia had some opportunities to really make uh, put some distance there, but it ended up being, I think, a 10-3 to final, Georgia winning in a neutral site game against Clemson to start off the year. So my thoughts turn to, could this be the first year the uh, – ACC gets shut out of the uh, the playoff. Miami didn't fare so well against Alabama. North Carolina, of course, lost at Virginia Tech. So we shall see, guys. Maybe we'll do a little uh, ACC rundown. There were some good results. Uh, NC State, 45-0 over U- U- uh, USF, South Florida. Duke came up short against Charlotte. Wake Forest, uh, 42-10 over ODU. You had uh, BC, 51-0 over Colgate. So a lot of shutouts. Uh, early on number three for them hurdled a guy like Bryce Perkins something about the jersey number oh nice yeah I missed that (laughs) uh Pitt put it on UMass 51 to 7 Syracuse got a win 29 to 9 over Ohio Georgia Tech was upset by Northern Illinois who I'm not sure won a game last year but they do have a traditionally strong program so 22 21 they went for it uh went for the two-point conversion I think at the end of that one and burned Georgia Tech at Georgia Tech Notre Dame looked pretty strong, had an 18-point lead at one point in the fourth quarter, but blew it and then had to win in overtime over Florida State after uh, the Seminoles missed their first field goal in the uh, extra period. 
and then Old Miss put the hurting on uh, Louisville, a game that wasn't as close, I don't think, as the final score indicated, 43-24. So that's your ACC rundown. Yeah, going back to uh, to the Hoos, they've now won nine straight games against non-conference opponents at Scott Stadium. They're 10-2 and two under Bronco Mendenhall against non-ACC foes. And since 2019, UVA 13-1 and one at Scott Stadium. So once again, uh, it'll be an early broadcast time across the UVA uh, Sports Radio Network. I think, what is it, local pregame starts like three hours before kickoff. I think Jay so. James and company are starting <laughs> around eight. And then the official... Jay's used to getting up that early, but I don't know about he, the... <laughs> yeah, he's an early bird anyway. But I think Dave Kane and company go on the air at 9.30. So yes. yeah, definitely early. You know, t- tailgate recipes are different for games like this than, than they are for 7.30 games. So we'll see what people come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but back to the ACC thing and Virginia. Virginia, three straight 500-plus yard games at home, and they're averaging something like 40 points a game during this this home-winning stretch that, that we've seen. So the offense is really uh, cooking at home, whether that's uh, breakfast cooking or nighttime cooking. They're, they're cooking at home. So. In terms of the ACC as a whole and, and the playoff and all of that, obviously Clemson is your best hope typically, but that really depends on the Pac-12 and the Big 12, right? The SEC and the Big 10 pretty much always have a seat at the table. Clemson usually has. But if the Pac-12 stinks and the Big 12 stinks, then maybe Clemson runs the table, does enough, or maybe NC State runs it. You just never know how all of that will play out. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what the other conferences do once the season gets going in earnest. Coach Mendenhall says they shouldn't even do rankings, meaning poll rankings. They should do the same thing as college football playoff rankings. They shouldn't do them until like eight or nine weeks in. That's when you really know what, what teams have. So we'll see, Virginia included, what pretenders, imposters, real contenders uh, for all these various, you know, title, whether that's college football playoff or division titles or, you know, New Year's Six Bowl games, all of that stuff. Long ways to go. Well, I'm looking at the rest of Clemson's schedule here. Hold on it's a awful. second. Good it's Lord. awful. Yeah. If you haven't looked at it, that's I mean, that's the reaction I expect. Oh my gosh. So yeah, if if they lose any more games this year, I mean, that will be their their one blemish, probably the, the UGA game. But you know, UCLA look has looked pretty strong. USC, I think, is is back on the comeback trail. So those are a couple of Pac-12 possibilities. And then you got Oklahoma is one of the favorites to be in there, along with Georgia and Alabama. Ohio State's always in the mix. So we shall see. And not the to look too far ahead, guys, but North Carolina, of course, that's that's one of the biggest, biggest games of the year, I think, for UVA. Yeah, and, and the Coastal looks like like it has looked, right? Seven different winners in a row. Last year, they took divisions off, and then you get chaos right out of the gates. So with, yes. with Virginia Tech beating the favorite Carolina immediately and Miami not looking great against Alabama. Does anybody look great against Alabama? I don't know. But, yeah, the Coastal looks, at least after week one, like it always looks like it could be anybody's to win and it could come down to road games. Well, there you go. Uh, looking in depth at the uh, football week that was, and that will be, and we want to talk a little bit of uh, UVA men's hoops in the next segment as some uh, highly touted recruits were in the house at Scott stadium over the weekend. And uh, a couple of guys that are in the, uh, the pro ranks too. It's awesome to see a whole bunch of folks returning. And of course the, the medals were plenty from the Olympics. So <laughs> a great time all the way around. And uh, we'll take a look at kind of the big picture for UVA men's hoops next year on the Saber.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, the Saber.com. 
And we're back here on the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by the Chris's Horn and Wright. And, well, you guys have had a lot to cover here, not only with football, but uh, there were some special guests in the audience. And I don't, I'm not sure how many football games Tony Bennett has been in attendance for. Uh, he's usually probably out on the recru- recruiting trail, right? But he, he was there in full force. And uh, I'll just let you guys do the rundown of uh, all the stars that were uh, in the crowd there among uh, future who's and past who's and Olympic who's and all of that. They were there, and uh, Isaac McNeely, Isaac Trout, the newly committed Isaac Trout, and uh, Leon Bond. So UVA's three commitments in the class of 2022. So this is the class that they're comparing, that many are comparing to the class of 2016 that won the national championship. So uh, no pressure. But, uh, but no, they're uh, – so they were there and looked like they were having a great time. And, uh, yeah, Coach Bennett was right there, and they were all decked out in orange, doing the orange out and everything. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty exciting. It's kind of building on – I think this is the good thing about, you know, that the NCAA allowed two official visits uh, or ten official visits total, and you can make, you know, an official visit to one school during your junior year. And if you want to go back to the same school your senior year, you can do that. So – we saw Leon Bond, and actually we saw all three take official visits to UVA uh, earlier in the year, uh, back in June, actually, so not not too far. And now they get to come back and experience the uh, the, the pageantry, which I think it, it certainly helps that atmosphere, but also saying, hey, we also got some Olympic medalists here that we're uh, commemorating. And, you know, so they got a chance to see how successful is UVA is in all sports really, I think, which is pretty cool. So, but yeah, I mean, um, yeah, these three, these three guys, you know, the fans know them well and, you know, they they can make it official and sign with Virginia in November. The thing that's interesting now is looking ahead. So uh, the class 2022 could potentially be finished. I know there are still at least one scholarship offer out to, uh, to Bobby Clintman, who's another kind of six, eight, six, nine, kind of uh, a big, big wing type of guy who, uh, they've kind of likened uh, the Virginia coaches have mentioned DeAndre Hunter to him. Um, he's coming from Sweden. He's now attending uh, a Sunrise Christian um, in Kansas, and he narrowed his list to six and included UVA in that list. The thing that's interesting to me is how hard is UVA really pursuing him, or is Coach Bennett pretty good with, you know, you look to 2022, he's got the projected roster includes 10 scholarship players. Um, so I'm interested to see how he's going to handle that, you know, in terms of roster makeup. I think what happened last year with having so many talented uh, scholarship players in the in the mix to, to, to play, I think you saw some guys get lost in the shuffle. And I, I think Coach Bennett prefers a smaller roster for chemistry, but also, you know, obviously we saw like, you know, Jabri Abdurrahim transfer out after his freshman year where he didn't get a whole lot of playing time. So maybe to avoid that type of uh, scenario moving forward, you can get your core together. And, uh, you know, if you need to, you know, fill any holes with, with transfers, you have some scholarships available next spring as well. So no, it was exciting having all three of those guys uh, on grounds and, you know, assuming they're going to sign in November, that's certainly exciting as well. But I think the next step is everybody's wondering now, does UVA move on to the class 2023 and, and maybe look at the transfer market next spring or do they, uh, or, you know, will they continue to recruit some high schoolers um, to join Trout, McNeely, and Bond? What do you see big picture-wise, Chris Wright? Yeah, to, to me, that's where the interesting stuff is starting to come into play with the no-sit transfer portal part of the equation. Virginia obviously benefiting from that itself. Recently, Trey Murphy III <laughs> certainly uh, comes to mind. 
Braxton Key got a waiver. It was not a no-sit portal, but I guess technically Murphy did too, but it eventually was a, an open portal last year once they, they decided everyone just should deserve one because of the pandemic. So yes, Virginia has benefited from that. They're hoping to benefit from that this year. Armand Franklin, Gardner, guys like that. So there's that piece of it. And then there's also the guys you bring in as high school recruits. How long can you keep them and keep them happy? So it seems like Coach Bennett is leaning towards smaller scholarship rosters, meaning instead of using all 13, maybe use 10 or 11. So what does that mean for 2022? What does that mean uh, for other things? It seems like point guard wise, 2022, maybe they've moved on to 2023. There are some potential other things at play in there as well. Extra eligibility years for players because of the COVID year, all of that. So yeah, big picture wise, it feels like smaller pods and how are you going to manage that? Can you bring in instead of what felt like alternate, what it felt like early on, it felt like big, big class, small class, big class, small class is what Virginia had kind of fallen into in terms of patterns. I don't know if it's going to be that way anymore. Is it going to be two or three per class? And you try to keep those little class pods together versus a really big four or five person class. It shakes out maybe one transfers, maybe what, you know, I just feel like it has a little different vibe to it than it did before. And then how to use the portal, you know, does Virginia want to continue to fill in gaps doing that? Like they have here these last several years, is that just part of being one of the big boys? Ultimately, if you're a big boy, is that just where you're forced to operate? And I think the answer might be yes, because of the way, you know, power five and major conferences and all that works. It may just be kind of par for the course that big time players, meaning on the national level as programs, maybe they are just teams that pull in people from the portal to fill in around your core year after year. So all of this is to be kind of played out. I don't worry too much about it, to be honest. I feel like Coach Bennett's going to be fine navigating it, however, because he is pretty meticulous. And in some ways, maybe he's too meticulous. You see this pop up on the board sometimes. Is he overthinking it as he goes back and forth on certain specific recruits? But overall, when you look at the big picture, it feels like he he has a pretty good sense for roster management, regardless of how you have to play it out. But it is interesting to follow it because it is a changing landscape, particularly with the COVID year thrown in there on top of all of that with extra extra eligibility potentially for players. Well, we've got one more segment here on the program and kind of the, uh, the saber rattle for this week will be a tribute to Charlie Watts. And we'll take you back about 10 or 11 years to that time. I got to interview the new drummer of the Rolling Stones. That's next here on the saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to, to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and, and participate and add something. All right, welcome back to the final segment of the Saber.com podcast. This is the last segment, the, the final countdown, so to speak. Uh, that's a song that gets played a lot, and that's going to make sense in a minute. I'm going to circle back to that, but uh, in arenas and such. But f- first of all, tribute to Charlie Watts, who passed away recently, longtime member of the Rolling Stones, and his replacement drummer, Jeff, had a chance to interview if I followed the uh, the story correctly. So, yeah, what can you tell us about a Charlie Watts, and then and then B, uh, you know, who's been drumming for the Rolling Stones lately? 
Well, you know, pretty much everybody, uh, as uh, anybody who has enjoyed rock and roll over the years has given some sort of tribute, it seems, to, uh, to the one and only Charlie Watts. He really was the backbone of the Rolling Stones for so many years, just uh, joining the band in 63 and was still going pretty strong up until very, very recently. Had some health issues. And when they initially announced it a few weeks ago, it was going to be stepping away just for this uh, portion of the tour. They had some tour dates scheduled for this fall, a handful of shows through from late September uh, through like late November across the, uh, the U.S. And Steve Jordan was going to be the interim drummer while Charlie Watts recovered. And uh, unfortunately, his health kind of took a, a surprise turn for the worse. And, uh, you know, 80 years old, uh, I believe it's the same age as Ringo Starr. And those two were, were close, even though it doesn't sound like all the members of the Beatles were necessarily all that close with all of the Stones. But uh, Paul McCartney gave a nice tribute online to Charlie and just he was beloved for his style of drumming, just pretty minimal, not simple necessarily, but he came from a, a jazz loving background. He, he was much more personally interested in jazz music than he ever was in rock and roll all throughout his life especially in those early days. At one point he created a jazz group. He did some side project albums, he even like composed for an orchestra and got a whole, might've been the London symphony at one point he was working with, but uh, just a fascinating guy. He was kind of the, the debonair, you know, the stylish one while, while Mick Jagger's running around in a leotard, you know, or whatever outfit that was hot at the time, <laughs> you know, Charlie was just always kind of that suit and tie back there. Just, you know, with that, uh, steady backbeat so and i was trying to think of other acts you think of you know the who lost their drummer tragically young led zeppelin pretty much same story there was a the drummer of the kinks we got to give a shout out to mick avery he at least was in the kinks for like 20 years before he had a falling out in the mid 80s with the davies brothers you know pearl jams had a whole kind of carousel of drummers over the years even though matt cameron's been there for like 15 now but you just kind of go down the list i mean the beatles weren't really around all that long they had what like a six seven year run there uh in terms of making albums together so just in terms of longevity and being able to still like they just had really a few years in the 80s where they didn't tour other than that it's been a pretty consistent every few years you know the stones i got to see uh, ladies and gentlemen the rolling stones the, the famous concert movie that documented one of their early 70s tours when mick taylor was still in the band before ron wood joined and that was pretty much the height of their uh, no frills that they, they hadn't gotten into the big stage, all the different, you know, arena rock things that they kind of innovated in the first place. And I think Charlie might've had some uh, design skills in that area with the album artwork and the stage design. So he, he definitely played more of a role than just drums in the band. Yeah. He's really, I, I was trying to think of any other uh, you got Larry Mullen jr. I guess of you two, who's been there since day one. And then Carter Beaufort. Carter Beaufort, he was the only other one I could really think of. I mean, it's been 30 years, I think, probably next year for, for those guys. And he's been there since day one. So shout out to, to them. And as far as Steve Jordan goes, he's the new, uh, the new drummer for now. I'm not, he's a super busy guy, so I'm not sure if he'll ever be acknowledged as like a full-fledged full-time member because Daryl Jones has been playing bass with them ever since Bill Wyman left. That goes back to like the early nineties and he's still not, he's never in like the, the photos. It's always just, it was always just Charlie, Ronnie, Keith and Mick and like the promotional photos and stuff. So Daryl is still kind of on retainer, I think. Uh, so that's probably the way they'll, they'll uh, deal with Steve too. But man, I mean, the guy was in the original Letterman house band. He was in the early Saturday night live 
house band. He's played with everybody from Stevie Wonder to Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young. He was in a band with Keith Richards, The Expensive Winos. He's been a producer. He worked a bunch of years with John Mayer, was in the John Mayer Trio. He, he was doing an album with Rod Stewart around the time that I got to interview him. He was on tour with John Mayer. They played JPJ, I think in 2010. And he just gave it, it was so generous with his time and the stories and talked about meeting the Stones when they were working on their Dirty Work album. He was working on an Arcadia, like Duran Duran side project in Paris. He gets the call to like, the boys want to see you. And so like, he goes through this like suburban neighborhood in Paris and, and opens this doors, like doesn't look like a studio, but he can hear the music. And then, you know, kind of gets to meet the Stones and really uh, kind of forms the the friendship bond at that point. And a guy to really like go down the rabbit hole of his Wikipedia page and all the different uh, things that he's been able to work on over the years. Steve Jordan, a uh, shout out to him. While you were talking there, another one I thought of is Questlove with The Roots. Yeah. That's been on drum, drums for a while, obviously. So, but you were mentioning arena rock, kind of that vibe, which ties into what I, what I was saying earlier, that the final countdown, you hear that a lot in arenas. Is there something that UVA's band or DJ Ron Manila or whatever could tie in a Rolling Stones song maybe more often that fits into the Virginia vibe? And I have a couple here, but do you have any off the, the top of your head that would that would fit there? I feel like Start Me Up is usually the one that gets gets the kind of football arena stadium going. Yeah, I feel like you hear that one sometimes in certain places. So I pulled up the Wikipedia list for Rolling Stones titles, and this is yeah. going to make sense to you, especially you, because you're this type of fan. There are two titles from the mid-60s that I think fit Virginia fans. One is called Pain in the Heart, I think is, uh, yeah, Pain in My Heart from 1964. And then the first one on the Wikipedia list, because it starts with a number, is 19th Nervous Breakdown from 1965. So in terms of Virginia fans... I think that kind of matches sometimes because it can get stressful with uh, the way the College World Series played out, the way the Final Four championship run played out, the way beating Virginia Tech, breaking the streak played out, nervous breakdowns and pain in the heart. I think Virginia fans might might identify with that. Well, there's always I can't get no satisfaction too. that. That applies to most every fan base, I guess, but <laughs> football wise anyway. But yeah, that that is an interesting question. I would look forward to seeing what the Sabre folks think about those stone specific arena anthems. They've got plenty to choose from for sure. <laughs> yeah, so we'll put that up on a, the corner board there as we've done it times in the past with music segments, just any Rolling Stones titles that make you think of Virginia fans or arena rock kind of appropriate Rolling Stones songs that could get thrown into the mix here and there. I will leave it with this as Virginia goes against Illinois this weekend. There is one from 1985 title wise called Winning Ugly. Let's avoid that against the Illini. Let's hope the students are out in force at 11 a.m. And let's hope Virginia plays extremely well. Um, I think that would be best for those other two, the nervous breakdown and all that kind of titles. Let's, <laughs> let's avoid winning ugly to avoid the nervous breakdown. In the meantime, thanks for listening and go Hoos.